BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. True crime. Unsolved cases. Strange disappearances. Join me as we travel through the timeline of some of the darkest acts in human history. I'm your host, Kevin Eustace, and welcome to the second season of The Deadly Countdown. Episode 5, Richard Ramirez, The Night Stalker. Los Angeles police thought that the murder of a young woman last March was an isolated act of violence, but since then they've come to believe it was connected to a wide-ranging series of assaults by a killer who's become known as the Night Stalker, a killer who apparently struck again during the weekend. You've just listened to a news report from CBS in 1985 during the height of the crime spree of Richard Ramirez. There are very few murderers whose name will resonate throughout time itself. 100 years from now, people will still know of Richard Ramirez, or as he's more widely known, the Night Stalker. But why Ramirez? People have murdered much more people in a serial killer sense than Richard Ramirez. So what is our fascination with the Night Stalker? Is it what he'd done, or how he went about doing it? In today's episode, those are some of the questions we'll try to shine a light on. But before we get to today's episode, I'd like to say hello. My name's Kev, and I'm the host of The Deadly Countdown. We're now at episode 5 of season 2. The midpoint of the season, if you will. And I'd like to thank each and every one of you for choosing to spend your time with me right here on what I consider your show, The Deadly Countdown. And a very special thank you to those people who support us over on Patreon. When you sign up to our Patreon team, not only are you supporting the show, but you also get early ad-free access to every episode. And on top of that, you can gain exclusive access to the Patreon-only show, Cold Case. Cold Case is released each and every fortnight without fail, where we take a look at one of the most famous cold cases in history. We've covered the likes of D.B. Cooper, the Black Dahlia, the Sodder Children, and we have many more in the pipeline just for our Patreons. And so, we'd like to extend an exclusive invitation just for you. Simply head over to patreon.com forward slash countdown. 
just like our wonderful new team members have. Andy P, Mariah, Scott, Haley H, The Magic Kitchen, DSJ and Amanda. Thank you so much, guys. Supporting the show means the show stays on the air. And I hope you enjoy all the early ad-free releases and, of course, the Patreon-only episodes of Cold Case. But right now, let's go back to the 1980s. And for one individual in particular, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, let's start the Deadly Countdown. Today, we delve into the abyss of one of the most chilling chapters in criminal history. A saga that casts a long shadow over the annals of true crime. Richard Ramirez, infamously known as the Night Stalker, not only terrorised the state of California, but also left an indelible mark on the psyche of the nation. Studying Ramirez's reign of terror offers us invaluable insights into the mind of a serial killer and the methodologies of criminal investigation that evolved in response to his crimes. As we journey through this harrowing tale, I invite you to look beyond the mere facts and figures, immerse yourself in the narrative, grasp the far-reaching implications of these events, how did a young man from El Paso, Texas, become a figure of such nightmarish proportion? What can the escalation of his crimes tell us about the nature of predatory behaviour? And how did law enforcement adapt to a new breed of criminal that Ramirez represented? Today we will tread through the timeline of terror he unleashed, the investigation that ensued and the legacy he left behind. Before the name of Richard Ramirez became synonymous with terror, he was a child of El Paso, Texas, born on the 29th of February, 1960. Understanding the man who would become the Night Stalker begins with a look at these formative years, for it's often in the roots that the seeds of future behaviour are sown. Ramirez was the youngest of five children in an American-Mexican family. His childhood was marred by a series of traumatic experiences and exposure to violence. His father, Julian Ramirez, a former Juarez policeman, was known for his temper and abusive behaviour. This volatile family environment was Richard's first school in violence, where fear and aggression intermingled daily. Perhaps the most significant and ominous influence in young Richard's life was his elder cousin, Miguel Ramirez, a decorated U.S. Army Green Beret. Miguel would regale Richard with graphic tales of his exploits in the Vietnam War, showing him Polaroid pictures of victims including acts of torture and mutilation. This exposure to brutality at a young age undoubtedly played a critical role in shaping Ramirez's psyche. By the tender age of 12, a pivotal and unsettling transformation began to unfold in the life of Richard Ramirez. 
It was the harbinger of darkness that was to engulf his future. The seeds of his abhorrent behaviour were already germinating, manifesting in various disturbing ways. He began experimenting with drugs, a perilous path that led him further away from the innocence of childhood and deeper into the recesses of a troubled mind. His usage wasn't merely recreational. It was an escape, a way to numb the chaos of both his home life and his confusion brewing within. Simultaneously, Richard became increasingly withdrawn. The vibrant spark that once marked the innocence of youth had dimmed, leaving in its wake a sullen, isolated boy who only found solace in the shadows. He retreated from the world, constructing an impenetrable fortress around himself. The corridors of his mind were a refuge and a prison, where dark fantasies began to take root. Perhaps the most ominous shift in young Richard's psyche was his burgeoning interest in Satanism. Although today Satanism is a recognised religion and it means no harm officially and has a full-on doctrine in relation to being kind to each other, back in the 80s, to declare yourself a Satanist was the ultimate act of rebellion. But this wasn't a mere teenage rebellion or a fleeting fascination. It was a deep dive into a world that to him glorified darkness and chaos a realm that resonated with the turmoil he felt inside. It provided a framework, to him a twisted form of empowerment in life, a life where he felt both powerless and insignificant. This grim interest would later catalyse into a defining element of his nightmarish persona, guiding his actions and fueling his sadistic impulses. As Richard spiralled further into these troubling behaviours, his academic life suffered a similar fate. The structured school environment clashed with the chaos of his internal world. Grades and academic achievement lost all meaning to him, as he found no solace or purpose in the hallways of education. Eventually, this disinterest and disconnection from the academic world culminated in his decision to drop out of high school entirely. It would be a decision that severed one of his last ties to normality and set him adrift on a dangerous trajectory that would eventually lead to his infamous reign as the Night Stalker. The initial stirrings of Ramirez's journey into infamy began with a seemingly innocuous encounter with the law. A prelude, if you will, to the macabre symphony he was to compose in his later years. His first brush with the legal system emerged not from an act of gruesome violence, but petty theft. A crime that in any other context may have been dismissed as a mere youthful indiscretion. However, in the case of Ramirez, this minor transgression 
was the first step down a sinister path. These early encounters with the law were like testing the water, gauging the limits of society's boundaries and his ability to transgress them. Every act of theft, seemingly trivial in isolation, was in fact a brick in the foundation of his criminal career. It was as if each act of theft was building his confidence, honing his skills in stealth, in deception, qualities that would become horrifyingly pronounced in his later crimes. But what started as petty theft soon escalated, as if each successful act fueled his appetite for greater risks, for more benefits, for intense thrills. The thrill itself wasn't just the acquisition of stolen goods, but the act itself, the breaking of a taboo, the defiance of societal norms. These early crimes served as a dark incubator for his ever-evolving criminal persona, shaping the predator he would become. Yet, these instances of petty theft were merely the prologue to the horror story he would eventually author. These seemingly minor offences one can trace as an embryonic stage of the monster that Ramirez was set out to be. Each act was a step further down that path from the realm of the ordinary, a steady march towards the extraordinary and the horrific. They were the early notes in a nightmarish melody that would later crescendo into a spree of unspeakable acts. In the formative years of Ramirez, a sinister tapestry was well on its way to being fully woven. Each and every strand representing a factor that added to the genesis of this future monster. The tapestry, intricate and dark, composed of a multitude of elements, each playing their own pivotal role in shaping completely the psyche of the man we would all know as the Night Stalker. Only by taking a step back and taking a look at this tapestry as a whole, the early years of Ramirez, the family violence, exposure to war atrocities, substance abuse, early criminal behaviour, malevolently sewn together with a needle created by a dark introvert, illustrates how a confluence of adverse circumstances and experiences can warp a human being to become a conduit of pure evil. Next, we're going to take a deep look into what happens when that tapestry is finished and that dark loner turns around and steps outside into the real world. It was a serene and peaceful day in the neighbourhood of Glassell Park, Los Angeles, on the 28th of June 1984, when Jenny Vincow was found brutally murdered in her bed. This was the first known attack by Ramirez, and it was marked by extreme violence. 79-year-old Vincow had been repeatedly stabbed, 
Her throat slashed so deeply she was almost decapitated. This initial crime set a horrific tone for the series of atrocities that would then follow. March 17th, 1985. Outside her home in Rosemead, Maria Hernandez was trying to get into her front door when Ramirez arrived and shot her in the face. But she survived, thanks to the keys deflecting the bullet. But only one hour after the attack on Hernandez, Ramirez broke into the home of Dale Okazaki, 34, and shot her dead. This night both showcased Ramirez's escalating boldness and his adoption of the 22 caliber gun. March 27th, 1985. In Whittier, Ramirez gruesomely murdered Vincent Azara, 64, and his wife Maxine, 44. Vincent was shot and killed instantly. Maxine was brutally assaulted and mutilated post-mortem, with her eyes gouged out, signalling a new level of depravity in Ramirez's crimes. May 14th, 1985. In Monterey Park, Ramirez broke into the home of William Doy, 66, and his disabled wife, Lillian. William was shot and beaten, and Lillian was sexually assaulted. William later passed due to his injuries. May the 29th, 1985. In Monrovia, Ramirez bludgeoned 83-year-old Mabel Bell and her 80-year-old sister, Florence Lang, with a hammer. He left satanic symbols at the sea. Both victims were found unconscious, and Bell later succumbed to her injuries. May the 30th, 1985. In Burbank, Ramirez handcuffed and sexually assaulted 41-year-old Carol Kyle before fleeing the scene. July the 2nd, 1985. In Arcadia, Ramirez broke into the home of 75-year-old Mary Louise Cannon, bludgeoning and stabbing her to death. July the 5th, 1985, in Sierra Madre, 16-year-old Whitney Bennett was attacked in her sleep with a tire iron. Miraculously, she survived, despite severe injuries. July the 7th, 1985, in Monterey Park, 61-year-old Joyce Lucille Nelson was beaten to death in her own home by Ramirez. July the 20th, '85. In Glendale, Ramirez murdered Max Needing, 68, and his wife Leela, 66, with gunshots and stabbings. Later that same night, in Sun Valley, Ramirez shot and killed Chainerong Covenanth and brutally assaulted and raped his wife, Somkid. Let's take a quick breather to both catch our breath and also you may be wondering why I'm reeling off this in a chronological order and it's simply because I want to reiterate just how quickly and how horrible these murders were. Every murder, every attack, every assault I've just listed off happened only over a four-month 
period. You can only imagine what was going through the LAPD's mind as this person literally went about their business free as a bird, attacking who they wanted, when they wanted. Changing his murder style, changing his weapons, changing the sort of person he attacked. There was no clear pattern other than a series of horrific attacks had spiked in LA. Right, breather over. Let's get back to his fifth and final month. August the 6th, 1985. In Northridge, Ramirez shot Chris Peterson, 38, and his wife, Virginia, 27, in their home. Thankfully, both survived. Two days later, August the 8th, in Diamond Bar, Ramirez shot Elias Aboath, 31, killing him instantly. And then he sexually assaulted his wife, Sakina, 27, in their own home. Ten days later, in Mission Veo, Ramirez shot a Mr. P. Pan, 66, dead, and then sexually assaulted his wife, Barbara, 62. But it was this crime that led to his eventual capture, as a witness noted his car and license plate. Each of these crimes over a mere five-month period left an indelible mark on the victims and their families. The sheer randomness and brutality of the attacks created a pervasive atmosphere of fear throughout California. Ramirez's methodology was not only brutal, but also capricious, making his crimes particularly unsettling. He used a variety of weapons and often left satanic symbols at the crime scenes. The escalation in his criminal activities was marked by an increasing boldness and a shift towards more grotesque forms of violence. The Night Stalker's reign of terror had a profound impact on the psyche of Californians. People fortified their homes, gun sales skyrocketed. The media coverage added to the climate of fear, casting Ramirez as a shadowy, almost supernatural predator. The investigation into the Night Stalker's crimes presented a unique set of challenges for law enforcement. The randomness of the attacks and the lack of a clear pattern made it difficult to predict where he may strike next. The very demographic of the victims and the differing methods of murder added extra layers of complexity to the case. The Los Angeles Police Department, along with several other agencies, were under immense pressure to catch a killer who seemed to slip through their fingers with each passing crime. But the investigation saw several key breakthroughs that eventually led to the identification of Ramirez. One significant turning point was the discovery of a fingerprint at the scene of Mr. Pan's murder. The fingerprint was crucial in linking Ramirez to the other murders. Another breakthrough was the recognition of a pattern in the shoe prints left at multiple crime scenes, which were identified as belonging to a rare type of avia sneaker. The role of the community and the media in Ramirez's capture was significant. The coverage of the case was extensive, 
and the public were being warned about the dangerous and armed suspect. Composite sketches derived from surviving witnesses were widely circulated, increasing public awareness and fear. On August the 31st, 1985, Richard Ramirez was captured. And it unfolded with a theatrical intensity that mirrored the shocking and dramatic nature of his notorious crime spree. It was a culmination not just of a manhunt, but of a collective nightmare that had gripped the state of California in a vice of fear. On that fateful day, as the sun rose over East L.A., the unsuspecting Ramirez, unaware that his mugshot was plastered across every news outlet and was etched into the collective consciousness of a community on the edge, walked into the neighbourhood. The streets, usually bustling with the everyday hum of life, became an arena where justice was about to be delivered in a most extraordinary manner. As Ramirez attempted to blend into the fabric of the city, his presence triggered a wave of recognition amongst the residents. It was as if the entire community instantly unified under a single purpose. The whispers turned into shouts. El Matador! The killer! The realisation that the Night Stalker walked amongst them, ignited a flame of collective determination and courage. People came out of their homes, their eyes reflecting a mix of fear, anger and resolve. The chase that ensued was not just a pursuit by a few individuals. It was a community exercising its demons, or rather, its demons. Ramirez ran, darting through the streets, and he became the embodiment of the terror he had inflicted. The residents, driven by a year of pent-up fear and anger, were relentless, and when they finally caught him, it was as if they were not just capturing a man, but capturing the very essence of their terror and their frustration. The crowd fueled by a mix of fear and a desperate craving for justice, subdued and beat Ramirez. A visceral response to the pain and terror he'd inflicted on the entire state. The police arrival was almost an anticlimax to the drama that unfolded. As they took the badly beaten man into custody, the man who had become the symbol of pure evil. This moment of capture was more than just the end of a manhunt. It was a cathartic release for a community that had been living in the shadow of fear. It was a dramatic and fitting conclusion to a reign of terror that held California hostage. A direct message that even in the face of pure evil, the collective will of the people will prevail. The trial of Richard Ramirez began on July the 22nd, 1988, and was a spectacle in its own right. Ramirez, with a pentagram drawn on his hand, often used the courtroom as a stage for bizarre outbursts and displays of Satanism. The evidence used against him was overwhelming. 
fingerprints, shoe prints, eyewitness testimonies. After a protracted and grueling trial, the curtain finally fell on the legal saga of Richard Ramirez. And on September the 20th, 1989, the verdict was in. And that verdict was almost as weighty as the crimes he had committed. He was found guilty on 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults and 14 burglaries. Each charge was a stark reminder of the trail of devastation Ramirez had left in his wake. The trial, one of the most complex and expensive in California's history, was a testament to the magnitude of his crimes and the exhaustive efforts to bring him to justice. The trial of Richard Ramirez was more than just a legal proceeding. It was a societal reckoning. On one hand, it was a demonstration of the legal system's capacity to address even the most horrendous of crimes. On the other hand, it highlighted the challenges and intricacies of seeking justices in cases marked by such extraordinary evil. Throughout this drawn-out legal battle, opinions remained divided. Between those who saw Ramirez as some irredeemable monster and those who considered him a victim of the tapestry he made as a teenager. This dichotomy encapsulated the complexities and nuances that often define the pursuit of justice in the shadow of such unparalleled darkness. Despite the defence's best efforts, the jury's decision was unequivocal, leading to Ramirez's conviction and subsequent sentencing to death on November 7, 1989. However, this sentence was just the beginning of another lengthy chapter in this story. Ramirez would spend decades on death row, ensnared in the intricate web of the Californian legal system. The years he spent awaiting his fate were a constant reminder of the enduring impact of his crimes and just how complex the American justice system can be, even in light of such overwhelming guilt. In terms of his death sentence penalty, true justice would never reach the Night Stalker. As Ramirez died of complications related to B-cell lymphoma on June the 7th, 2013, while still on death row. His death closed the final chapter on the Night Stalker saga, but did little to diminish the infamy of his crimes. In closing, let us remember the victims and their families whose lives were forever altered by these tragic events. They remind us of the depths of human depravity but also the resilience of communities under threat. The phrase, the world is a better place without you in it, is an awful one to utter. But for someone like the Night Stalker, it's one that should be shouted from the rooftops. And so, for Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, let's stop the clock.
As ever, thank you for choosing to spend your time with me here on your show, The Deadly Countdown. And what do we have in store for episode six of season two? I didn't know he was a killer. I didn't know he looked nice. You've just heard the voice of the woman that was responsible for the capture of one of the most infamous killers in world history. Yes, next week we will cover the case of the Son of Sam. But before we go, a quick reminder, if you'd like early ad-free access to all our episodes, and of course, you can gain access to our Patreon-only podcast, Cold Case, head over to patreon.com forward slash The Deadly Countdown. And finally, all audio used in today's show is covered under fair use, and the links to which can be found within the show notes. So until next week, stay safe and take care.